Gentlemen, start your engine. Good afternoon, radio. For those who don't know, Radio Hotler. Thanks for coming and making time. It's on everybody's mind. For those who don't know, there's a big shebang. Sorry about that. Sorry about the little uh, um, um, technical goodies. Radio Hotler. Hot, 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 oh, cheers, boys. Cheers. That's an oddly top you've got on. Not that I'm after you. <laughs> you have to get in line and it's a long queue. Is it? And you'd be very low on the totem pole. I'll give you the drum. The drum? Hmm. What, any particular kind of drum? A castrel drum, perhaps? Drum cigarettes. <laughs> this is a non-smoking show. It's barely registering. Non-smoking show. You'll be fine. You'll find that we use extremely interesting technology post-processing for not editing, but bringing the levels of audio to the suitable quality that the viewers enjoy. Isn't that right, Fogwa? That is right. Hardywa. <laughs> As we sit here on the bucolic banks of the Yarra River in Richmond, Victoria. Look, the Welcome to my abode, my humble abode. The last time I heard the word bucolic, there was a plague involved. That's bubonic. <laughs> well, you that do means... have trouble with your words, don't you? <laughs> what's Bu Nissan's, what's Honda's luxury brand in the United States called? Uh, Acura. Acura. Well, at least you're not saying Acura anymore. <laughs> and that must mean it's time for episode 126 of Radio Hot Lap, that poisonous, <laughs> that poisonous, ravenous, poisonous, that light-hearted motorsport podcast that takes a light-hearted look at it all. Cool emerging technology, gadgets and barbecues, Aussie style. Here we are on the 14th of September, 2009, episode 126 at Le premises here. In Shea Fogues. Shea Fogues? Mm. Or on the Radio after, Hot Fogues. Yes. Don't remind me of that. I'm still upset about being booted from my own radio show, despite the fact that I did attempt a coup for a couple of episodes. But that's beside the point. I think you're being churlish to hold that against me. <laughs> Just churlish. But yes, we what are. Does, what this is, is the day after, the day before. What is churlish? Can you explain that to the viewers? Uh, no, no, I'd like you to explain <laughs> With us today, we In have... In simple terms, being unnecessarily mean. Mm. With us today, we have a silent guest who may or may not be creating some input. He's a bit of a technology buff, knows a bit about iPhones, but more so about Bengal tigers. He'll be talking to us later, perhaps on the show, after he's had a little glass of this succulent $295 wine. <laughs> <laughs> the Bowler's Run Cab Merlot, available at all fine Dan Murphy wine retailers. A little thin on the palate, but very good for a Monday afternoon, boys. For under three bucks. <laughs> Cannot complain. Could be dishwater for three bucks. Cheers, Cheers. Cheers gentlemen. So we have an actual tech guru in our midst. We do. In fact, he'd be very techy. Um, and perhaps, you know, with the, uh, the motorsport events of the weekend pretty much behind us, and most people are a little bit up to speed, the... Uh, Monza Formula One Grand Prix with a sudden change at the end and the Phillip Island LNH 500 a sudden change at the end and dare I say going very much outside my comfort zone but I'll only say it once because I was forced to watch it a very sudden change between Collingwood and the Crows on Saturday night which is actually quite exciting that uh, we have a technology person here who doesn't want to get your dander up about Telstra. He does. He will. Looking and forward to that. <laughs> Maybe we should start on it. Or should we like, we'd like to take on, take on motorsport? Let's slow burn and build up because then the explosion's always much bigger and better, isn't it? The LNH 500. Folks? What were your impressions of it? I was going to ask you. I thought it was um, 
I thought it was a good event. Um, the weather was windy, but it was pleasant. I thought there was a, quite a good crowd, certainly uh, for those people that you know that bothered to come that far down there. Th- better weather than expected. You know, brought more jackets than I really needed to, and uh, it was was very very pleasant. The rain held off. It was an uh, excellent race at the front of the field between Will Davison and Garth Tander versus Jamie Wincup and uh, Craig Lowndes with an uh, unexpected end um, on the very, very last lap. Who would have thought it? The crowd, you know, they would. if anyone who left early, well, it's a, it's a great advertisement for saying, well, don't leave till the very last lap. It was an extraordinarily unexpected finish. Craig Lowndes had the race, well, not shot to pieces, but heading for almost certain victory and then a few laps to go he suddenly starts slowing and Tander with whom Craig had been sort of trading the lead in their last uh, stint started closing in on him and uh, well probably two-thirds away around the last lap the very final lap Tander snuck past Lowndes who it turns out his car was crippled by a delaminating right front tyre so uh, once again HRT pulled the iron out of the fire at Phillip Island as they did last year and scored a surprise victory at the expense of Team Vodafone. Last year it was Jamie Wincup who miscued and threw away the race, gave it to the Holden Racing Team. This time it was, well Craig didn't throw it away, um, but it was on his watch that they lost it. So it was a, an amazing finish to actually, if you watched it and followed it, it was an amazing race because it was basically a 500 kilometre splint, sprint um, between the two heavyweights of V8 supercars, the Team Vodafone Hogster, driven by Lowndes and Windcup, and the HRT Commodore, the number two lead car, driven by Tander and Will Davison, and they just slogged it out, ran, you know, HRT chased Team Vodafone all the way until, you know, right at the very end, um, it all turned upside down. So it uh, certainly bodes well for the Bathurst 1000, where, of course, Lowndes and Windcup are going for a record fourth straight Bathurst 1000 crown in a row, but I think it's going to be really tough for them this time. The competition gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Ford Performance Racing backed, uh, the, backed up the, the, that duo with a third place of Steve Richards and um, Mark Winterbottom. Uh, Steve Richards not really performing probably as good as he could have been. Um, the, no, no surprise, he seems to have dropped off the pace a little bit there. A good comeback for the team. In fact, they've been turning it around since Queensland Raceway and they were solid, particularly in the preliminaries and got got the pole position for the race and ran a solid, fast finishing third, but um, maybe a bit of a harsh call, but I think really they would have been in the thick of it had Richo done a stronger stint um, initially. Um, Once Winterbottom got in the car, um, they went on a charge. So... A lot of questions about Steve Richards' future at Ford Performance Racing. He's staying there next year. It's the final year of his contract. Beyond that, it's heavily up for debate. Um, but, you know, Richo, by his own admission this year, is having probably the worst year of his, certainly V8 supercar career. And, you know, no one needs to tell him that he needs to uh, lift his game. Coming in, I think, just outside the top ten was the uh, super sp- uh, the sprinter. A gas pairing of Greg Murphy and Mark Scaife, who made his return to uh, VO Supercar Racing just for the two Enduros. And in fact, uh, it, it's probably it, it, it's a long time, but a short time for the viewers if they were to rewind a year ago. It was Mark Scaife who actually won the event alongside Garth Tander. So, it, you know, it's, it's people these days are almost going, oh, well, who is Mark Scaife? Well, he showed that he had quite good strength uh, and I think probably a pretty good result for the Sprint Gas team. A solid result, nothing to write home about. I mean, for two drivers of the calibre of Greg Murphy and Mark Scaife, even though Scaife hasn't raced competitively, hasn't raced for nine months, it's, it's a solid result, but nothing to rave about. They really need to lift their game at Bathurst, and in all likelihood they will. They're both experts up Mount Panorama, but if they'd snuck into the top ten, maybe into the top six, that would have been very impressive. Um, this one... It's what you'd expect, and you will, we should expect a lot more progress at Mount Panorama. But, you know, it's not easy for Scaife to come back in after he's been out of the, you know, the, the oven of competition for a relatively long time, and given all the other things he's got going on in his life at the moment. I mean, he is the busiest man in motorsport, certainly in V8 supercars, with all the different hats he's wearing, you know, between TV and his, 
independent directorship of V8 Supercars and chairing the committee on the car of the future and you know who knows I think he probably takes out the trash up at V8 Supercars headquarters each night you know for all I know Is that right? he's just a bit <laughs> well he would after coming out of the oven they'd hardly be grilling him would they I'm exaggerating but I mean, he's he, a very busy boy he's not half baked no but no solid result is how I would describe it other interesting players in the top 10 Jim Beam Racing were, were very solid, not spectacular, but you know, Courtney and Steve Johnson came home in fourth and they were followed home by the second car, uh, which basically was anchored by Warren Luff and um, ably abetted by Jonathan Webb. And that was, in fact, fifth for them is, is a, a very impressive job for a couple of irregulars. Jonathan Webb competes in the Fujitsu series, in fact, he's leading that. Um, but Warren Luff, who spends most of his time doing um, stunt driving and driving instruction and all sorts of things, for him to step back in. All sorts of things. I noticed he had his collar up quite a lot, chatting up thin blonde women who were sitting on crates drinking Jim Beam. Not mm. that they were in the pit area. And presumably wearing his balaclava this time too. <laughs> but that was a strong result. So if you look down the order of finishes, there were some quite impressive performances throughout by some of the lesser rated combinations and there were some disappointments you know among some people who you'd expect to do better the kellys did okay their car their, pa their car <laughs> had good pace it on did. the saturday race <coughs> um they got compromised in the second race on saturday by when rick was driving um in the uh, the b driver race somehow managed to dislodge the ballast from under the car and they had to come in for a pit stop to rectify that. So because the grid positions on Sunday were decided by the aggregate result of the A and B driver well, that, that, that We should really go pack. back and, and have a bit, a bit of a talk about <clears throat> the complexity of the simplification of racing this weekend for the viewers because um, the fans were expecting, you know, like a standard 500-kilometre race followed by a 1,000-kilometre race at Bathurst. But this year, folks, I believe they decided to do it a little bit differently. Not only were there an A, B and C uh, practice session on the Friday, which didn't really specify who was in the car, it was then decided that they would have an A and B driver practice session on the Saturday morning, followed by an A and B qualifying session. Now, the A driver would start the first race and the B driver would start the second race. Didn't mean that A driver was faster than B. And one of those options, one of those drivers had to take a pit stop five laps in to change two tyres. Completely and utterly complicated, the far too complicated. And They've the overthought it to try and mix it up, and yes, it does have that desired result, but it's very messy on the Saturday, and if you're a, you know, a punter on the hill, particularly trying to make sense of it, it would be very confusing. You know, it, it kind of gets the desired result in that it does mix up the grid, but the it's very arbitrary. The big question was who qualified, where, for what? How did the qualifying result, the qualifying, or the grid for the Sunday, 500 kilometre race come about. How did the that... The combined points that both drivers earned in each race. So if you finished first and your co-driver finished you know, 20th, well, you'd get a low score and Very start back in the pack. Very odd stuff indeed. It's something different, but this is a, an ongoing debate. Do you think that the viewers, those in the uh, in the area uh, nearby of the, of the racetrack, which have access to excellent Telstra, big pond connections, would be able to enjoy grid position information on their newly provided iPhones, the f iPhones that can work in all nations with the same SIM card? <laughs> You're goading me, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know about tethering, so you You're tethering. But I do know about phones that are locked and unlocked. Not that we're getting no, on to that We yet. will. But why, by the way, why have we got the microphone facing away from us? We, we, ha we haven't. The microphone's down the arse. Oh, it is down there. Sorry. Okay, you've got that green thing wrapped around it and can't tell one end from the other. like to say, uh, folks, uh, oh, we should quickly talk about our international pairing, I suppose, uh, Alan Simonson and uh, 
James Thompson, the uh, twice British touring car and once world touring car champion, uh, got together. Uh, I think that they they did have a bit of a there was a bit of an A and B car there, despite what Roland had said. Uh, led to believe that there were some irregularities in the way that the cars were set up, perhaps for testing purposes on the Saturday. Uh, that might have helped the teams on the Sunday. And, and of course, with running ethanol fuel now, there were longer fuel stops. Uh, more fuel stops. More fuel stops. That's yes. what they were. Three also, also of longer. The same will be at Bathurst. They'll probably make, I don't know, seven to eight stops at Bathurst this Which year. Which equates to more trouble. Because the ethanol, um, while it doesn't really cost horsepower, it, it is not as... Um, you don't get as much... You know, you get poorer consumption out of a litre of ethanol compared with... E85 compared with 100% um, petrol. So, yeah, I, Alan and um, James, yeah, again, in the circumstances, ad, again, a decent result. It was compromised. It, you're probably right, their car didn't have the sheer pace of the lead team Vodafone car, but we'll never know unless the team come out and tell us. Um, a stop-go penalty for... Stop well, Alan Simonson was a bit of a naughty boy. He got a stop-go penalty for... Or was it a drive-through? Uh, a drive-through make up your mind, for um, punting Lee Holdsworth off. It was, and, it was, and it was pretty blatant. Um, he may not have meant it, but it was a blatant act that sent Holdsworth spearing off, so he got the slap over the wrist for that, and you know, then they were set back from there, and it was difficult. You know, Alan's got some considerable experience in V8 supercars, whereas James Thompson hasn't got any experience. This is his first racing experience, and he probably did all right. There's no love between the Danish and the Czechoslovakians, as uh, as as he found out uh, as a result of Thomas Mazira's uh, decision. I hadn't thought of that aspect. Bringing in Europeans, uh, yes. yes, ethnic tensions. <laughs> There's, uh, I must say, your we, folks. We I could go on. I mean, the Stig. Sorry, Ben Collins in the second. Jack Daniels racing Commodore, you know, again a solid result, but didn't you know set the world on fire. When are you going to get the stigma out of your dogma? Um, well. Look, uh, I want to divert a little bit because you've already got yourself into all sorts of trouble over that in the last uh, forty-eight hours or, or so. But uh, great article last week, uh, remembering uh, Frank Gardner. Thank you. Welcome. But uh, folks, what you haven't addressed, and, and I, I would urge you uh, to, as we chatted last night, as I uh, uh, helped you get over your little weekend cold, <laughs> before you had a le lemon lip sip or whatever you have before you went to bed, now good night. I said you're, you tri you're trivialising you something that was very you're serious. Fine. You do need to you do need to track down um, uh, who is the recipient of the Terry. T Oh, we're up. We're by the river, viewers. Rowing's going on. Training for some sort of rowing. Yes, uh, and that's, uh, in fact, Frank Gardner going by. Because uh, that's what I say. Hey, there he is. He's not really gone. Because that bloke was wearing a terry toweling hat. And that's what we need to find. Where is that terry toweling hat? And will it be going to George Fury? That's an interesting point. However, I think George Fury, as I recall, had his own stock of terry toweling hats. A bus line driver. A school bus driver up in Talmelmo on the Murray in southern New South Wales. A large bus line, I believe. Well, not when I was there a long time ago. I remember as a young reporter going up to do a feature on George Fury when he was um, hot in rallying and then touring cars and the Nissan Bluebird turbos. Yes, he was a Nissan driver all the way through. And I was very excited by the fact that I was told that you know up in Talmelmo he was the local school bus driver. And being a young, impressionable young bloke, I thought my vision of a school bus was one of those big yellow Rios that, you know, they use in the United States. Partridge family yeah, style. This, this would be a good photo opportunity. Imagine how crestfallen I was when I got there and said, OK, George, well, let's go and do some photos in your school bus. And he wheels out a Datsun Irvan. <laughs> a Datsun Irvan? A Datsun Irvan. It wasn't Which even was, Nissan then. But so Datsun. he was sponsored to be a bus driver. Well, he was a Nissan, uh, Datsun driver back then. So, yes, that was a funny story. But yes, he used to like his Terry Telling hat. But um, George Fury is, is, is a good subject for one of those where are they nows? Because I know he's around somewhere, but I really don't know where he is. And he sort of... He's like, a bit like a supernova. He sort of flashed across the sky in rallying and then touring cars and then sort of 
apparently disappeared off the face of the earth. Why don't you uh, do a little uh, where are they now uh, scenario, maybe once a month, you know, pick up someone interesting like... Uh, I'll look into that and I'll get back to you. Well, don't get back to me. Get back to the boss of uh, AA, who was, um, was there with his... Uh, Rob Margot, yes, he was down there with us. Lovely we were talking about Frank Gardner before, and no, that was good. I he, think it was he very was appreciated. A tre- tremendous character, and, and words don't do him justice. I mean, he was just the funniest, driest, he was most down-to-earth person you could ever meet. And you know, he could be—he was hard, but he was fair. You know, he, and um, as I said in my column in Auto Action, um, you know, he had a lot to do with my development as a driver, and you know, sort of in the early days trained me up to the, the, <laughs> the very modest peak that my driving ability um, attained. But, it, you know, it was good. And um, every time I sit in a car at some stage, I often think of Frank just because he drummed into me this, the right seating position and, and, and how to position yourself for, for the best control of the car just by your stance behind the wheel. We disagreed on the how you turn the steering wheel. He had this weird sort of push-pull-like method and rather than quarter to nine or ten to two and I could just never wear that but otherwise you know he was one of the uh, most um, practical and inspirational um, driving instructors that I've ever come across he was good fun and he was I mean he was people don't realize what a good driver was and the sheer diversity of his career you know everything Formula One sports cars Touring cars, multiple British touring car champion, Formula 5000, and then, you know, when he came back, um, running, before he ran the BMW teams and all that, you know, he put together this weird sports sedan that was based on a Chevrolet Corvair, a car, by the time it hit the tracks, it was already, well, almost 20 years out of date, but Frank was smart enough to work out that within the sports sedan rules back in the late 70s, mid-late 70s, that you know, the fast car would be something based on the silhouette of Corvair because it had a rear engine that you could make mid-engine and it was small, low profile, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he dominated, he just ran away. I remember as a young kid writing a headline for Auto Action back in the days when I worked in the same office but not for the magazine, but a big fat headline on the front of Auto Action was just Killer Corvair. Because it did, it just came out and it just wiped the floor with everything. So Frank is, um, he certainly missed, but... Um, the legacy of, um, of his great one-liners and stories, you know, they'll live on forever. It was good to uh, catch up with uh, Lynchy Poo and uh, Rob from AAP on the weekend. They are an interesting bunch of people to enjoy the weekend with. And, uh, and I must say thank you very much to Cole Hitchcock from V8 Supercars for providing a, a, a pass for us and uh, a nice warm, if not overly warm... What are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. Look... I, he, there was Cole, he what was going to get sacked. What colour is your tongue? Look at it. Oh, He was going to get sacked 25 minutes after Coco got up there and said there was a typo on that last press release uh, where the, uh, the 2010 calendar was released. Any comments about the 2010 calendar? Now that we know that the two fly away races at Yas Marina and uh, Bahrain International will precede the, the first domestic race Eclipse of 500 two weeks prior to the Australian Grand Prix, which appears like it looks like it's a championship round now. Uh, well, it doesn't say that, didn't denote. There was no denoting not championship round. And also the theory that there's going to be two weeks between every V8 supercar round before we have a mid-season break, which is lovely for the drivers to nip off with spend their money. Uh, so that's right, two-month break. Yes, two-month break. Thank you. Yes, you've got two thumbs cut off. and that's Nine weeks. weeks. Nine weeks before we go <laughs> to, to Europe. For a nice little time uh, to uh, spend the money that they've earned wholeheartedly during the year. What do you think of all that? All that? Yes. Idiot. No, That's it's all I can expect. From much is expected because we've been drip fed this over a number of weeks. And if you read Auto Action, you would have known weeks ago that it, yeah, but we're the just series, about the, the, actual, ser- the series the, was the, going to start with a double header in Abu Dhabi, Abu Dhabi, and Bahrain. And they heard it here first. And what hasn't been announced yet but will be soon, is that because Bahrain this November now is being um, dropped because they're going back in February, its replacement will be a 
I understand, a two-day meeting back at Phillip Island. Back to the island with the yes. over, over warm air conditioning. November 7 and 8. But good practice, sandwiches. Practice, yes. Practice and qualifying on the Saturday. Two V8 races on the Sunday. No support races. But it will. all the proceeds from the meeting will go to a charity, a worthy cause. And V8 Supercars can afford to do that because those good folk at Bahrain International Circuit... They honoured their sanction fee, so they're paying for the V8s to go to Bahrain even if they're not this year, and then we'll pay them again in February. So the coffers are nice and full, so V8s can hold the race, the second, the return visit to Phillip Island, fund it, and any proceeds that generated will go to ch a charity. They're thinking along the lines of Jane McGrath um, Cancer Charity or um, the Victorian Bushfire. Charity, so something like that. So they're putting something back. In the short term, it appears that uh, there's been some money sent down to the uh, on-track paddock uh, foodie outlet there because I, I had the best steak sandwich. And I'm going to throw over to our technology specialist, Matty, about, because he knows a lot about steak sandwiches and about the makeup of a steak sandwich because, as you know, they have to be cut diagonally. What makes up a great steak sandwich, Matt? Well, John, I'm just enjoying my mild Merlot here down on the Yarra. I don't know, I'd say a perfect steak sandwich is all in the consumption, you know? It's about the company and the, the perfect layering of that. But what should and shouldn't go into it? I mean, if you're having a white shirt, should they give you beetroot? It's all in the hand-holding of the sandwich. But it's the taste, folks. He has a malevolent voice, doesn't he? Who? Oh, now I can't say it again. You... <laughs> Mellifluous. We were promised a barbecue. And here I am on the balcony waiting for that perfect barbecue. Where is it, John? Well, it will be coming presently before we uh, uh, a small uh, helicopter will be coming to take us and whisking us away to faraway lands. I think he actually meant barbecue sauce. Ah, I see. Lovely. Well, I am enjoying it. Yes, but you enjoyed your steak sandwich thick, thoroughly thick at the Silver Island Cafe. No gristle. Excellent salty onions yeah. and uh, cheese, and but not too much. No, 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 beetroot. Not that I mind beetroot, but they, it can come a cropper with you and uh, also poison your hands and then it gets all over everybody else. It's just all triple troublesome stuff and it gets a bit soggy. So I would give it a, a huge thumbs up. And, and we'd only talk, Fogwa, on the way down about uh, how... Um, the food quality at Australian racetracks were just so substandard compared to Europe. Oh, very much so. It's disgusting what people have to tolerate at, uh, well, probably at most sports events, but certainly some of the V8 events at permanent tracks. The Phillip Island catering down there in the cafe just outside the paddock, um, you said was exceptional, and I think it must be, but that's more to do with the um, I don't Lynn like Fox, who, 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 who owned Phillip Island, who spent millions and millions of dollars upgrading that track and improving the facilities. And that, apparently, from your experience, is just one very good example of how they're trying to um, win over the punters by giving them good quality food, at least if they get into the paddock area. So Chips more power hot. to them. Chips were hot. Yeah. Beers were handed over without the ka-ching taken off, uh, although I only had one one afternoon. And, uh, but that was you know, the way it should have been done. And a nice place to sit, people coming out, cleaning the tables. Yep. A little bit of a band playing and some green plants wouldn't go astray, but uh, I thought that uh, that was that, that was fair. What are you laughing about? Just the, the visualisation, thanks, John. Quality shouldn't be an option. If you pay a significant sum of money to go and visit a motor race, you shouldn't expect to be paying over the odds, as you usually do, for substandard... Um, beverages and food and that's often what happens unfortunately but a big tick for Phillip Island. Rewinding 12 hours George Medeke and his father Andrew Medeke I'll say that individually because they we're not quite people. sure <laughs> we're not sure how to say it. They're father and son but have they different are, surnames but, yeah, apparently were a guest of Anne Neal the partner of Mark Webber at the Monza Grand Prix in Italy well you know it sometimes you bring your friends along and it all just screws up. Well, it doesn't appear that it was actually uh, Mark Webber's fault to go off uh, on the, the second corner, uh, but nor does uh, Robert Kubica even uh, remember whether he damaged his wing hitting him 
or someone else. What we do know is that he is pretty much kaput, still in fourth place with 51.5 points for the World Championship. It was a pretty interesting race, um, and um, Kimi finishing third, and the two uh, Braun cars, Team Brown cars, finishing first and second. You know about Team Brown because of the Team Brown parking side at Valencia where they got it all wrong. Anyway, you'll have to go back to episode 124 to read all all about that. How could I have missed that? Ruben Sparicello winning his second Grand Prix in in three races with with Button in second. Now, that's compressing the championship lead down to 16 points. 14 points, okay. Uh, And, unbelievably so, on the very, very last half of the lap, in fact... Les Mo won, not Les Bo, won uh, the corner after the second chicane. Uh, I saw, uh, what's his name? Um, Lewis, uh, Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton pick up a few little rocks on the outside and then zzz, a big hit. Um, said he was pushing very, very hard. He threw it uh, away. He did he indeed. He threw it away. He, was, he, was, um, he had it all hanging out. Every bit of him was all over the shop. And he was chasing hard, and uh, it was a very impressive effort, and it underlined just how good Lewis Hamilton is, and I'm not sure why people are surprised when he does so well sometimes, but he overdid it. The headline from Monza was that the Brawns are back. It was a warm day, which previously had been their Achilles heel. They weren't able to perform in warm conditions, Um, but they did this time, and... uh, so the World Championship battle c- continues with Barrichello closing in on his teammate Jensen Button. Uh, Vettel, uh, he only just managed to sneak into the points, so he's still in contention, but effectively it is a race between the two Braun teammates to the end of the season. And as you pointed out earlier, because he got knocked out on the first lap, Mark Webber is effectively, unless some something really bizarre happens, is out of the race, which is a shame, but, you know, I don't know. He got... You know, he, if you don't qualify strongly and you get caught in the pack, you're always vulnerable to something going wrong. So, we're moving quickly along to our Le Mans series. Uh, Aston Martin has taken the title. I know you're rolling your eyes. You knew they were going to do it. Stu Little didn't make it across the line, but um, David Richards is going to go to WRC. Obviously, from here, he's had a gut full of it. What's your thoughts on that? You've stolen the words out of my mouth, haven't you? No, I had a long chat with DR last week and uh, the bottom line of it all is that uh, they're not going to go back to Le Mans next year because he's just not happy that the changes to the engine regulations have achieved true parity between the diesel and the petrol-powered cars and uh, there's no hope of Le Mans winning, uh, of Aston Martin winning Le Mans with a petrol-powered car in the, under the current framework that they're proposing for next year. So, um, effectively... They're out, but what they're going to do is develop the car and look at the new engine regulations coming in 2011, which, as we speak, are proposed to being for you know much smaller turbo-powered engines, you know diesels and petrol that will be um, well essentially will be equal in their performance potential. So it's bad news that Aston Martin are not going to go back to Le Mans next year as it stands, but there's a very strong likelihood that they will be back in 2011. In the meantime, ProDrive is not going to go forward with its plan to get to go into Formula One, even though there may be uh, an extra entry available if BMW Sauber is not resurrected. Uh, but David Richards has basically just given up on it and doesn't think it's viable. Um, what he's concentrating on now is getting back into the World Rally Championship because uh, he says that he has at least three manufacturers that are interested in partnering ProDrive in the World Rally Championship. So ProDrive, which pulled out this year because Subaru withdrew its support, um, has already basically designed a generic World Rally car and a new engine uh, to go with a new formula to be introduced in 2011, I think. It's a 1.6 litre turbo. They've basically designed a car that can be adapted to whatever manufacturer they end up aligning with, and their plan is to come back to World Rallying in 2011. That's really really good news for the World Rally Championship because they're desperate for manufacturers. New Formula 3 champion, we'll come back to that. Did we mention that Aston Martin clinched 
the Le Mans series yeah, yes, we at did. Silverstone. We, we did. With yeah, our good it, friends. Even though uh, Orica won the, uh, the, the, race. the race with uh, our, Ollie Panis uh, at the helm there. and Our good Jenny, friend Stuart Hall was in the uh, Aston Martin the, the, driving our strength. Our good, good friend Stuart, Stuart Little. Little Hall yeah. and was there. Um, and also uh, the GD2 title went to uh, Mark Lieb and uh, um, uh, Litz, Raymond Litz uh, in the Porsche. So Porsche trounced Ferrari in the GD2 title. The GD1 title was taken by, I've no idea, but interestingly, as a one-off race, Gigawave entered their GD1 car that Allen had driven last year in the FIA GT with Peter Cox and uh, Darren Turner, I think, uh, and took the GD2 title. Aston Martin DB09. Correct. Uh, Which also was the end of that GD1 as in those current uh, specifications, but the car being grandfathered in will be now available to run in 2010. In the well, World GT Championship. World yes. GT Championship. Right. Now and then. Well, I tell you, that harkens to time. Well, there's been a bit of trouble in Telco land, uh, and uh, you're not happy because it appears that. A recent revelation on the Apple computer website shows that you can actually buy an iPhone for the same price you paid for it from Tilstra that allows you to use it in all nations with any SIM, yet... Unlocked. Unlocked, yet... For which I have to pay $150 to have my iPhone 3G unlocked to be able to use it overseas with my overseas SIM cards that I use when I'm travelling, my blood is boiling. Unlocked yes, I would, so it's an unlocked, unlocked phone. It's, no, I bought it outright. It's outrageous. Outrageous, outright. I've always bought unlocked. my phone That's the three U's of Telstra So problems. that they're not locked to any carrier, so I can use them anywhere in the world. And for some obscure reason, this one I bought, even though I bought it outright, is locked to Telstra, and I have to pay 150 bucks to get it unlocked. And now, to add insult to injury, I discover that I can go along to an Apple store and buy one outright and unlocked. Is that the case? We have brought our specialist telco engineer and analyst of evaluation uh, here, and uh, he's got a few words to say to us, Matty. No, this is correct. (laughs) But what is the problem? No, the, the deal is, basically, that the rules have changed, so the incumbents were basically locking you into a contract and also trying to tie you into a further contract by making you pay to unlock after you paid all your royalties and rates and done all the good things that you have done. And in, in your case, you've actually paid for the phone outright. That's mm. disgusting, really, I would say. It is. So not only do you charge a fortune, but... I'm going to war. War. I'm over it. this now. It was unwise, I think, uh, viewers, that that Telstra has chosen to uh, to wage a war on a man of a greater uh, media significance than themselves. Uh, I Matt, doubt that Matty, that's the case, think? but I am angry. Look, it's changed for all the telcos, so it's, uh, it, it is a point in time, but um, do essentially... Might, do you think you might tweet? Do you think this might drive you to tweet? It could be just the sort of thing that drives me <laughs> over the otherwise unthinkable edge that I would ever get involved in in tweeting or Facebooking or any of that. I just think it's unfair. If you buy the phone outright, you've paid for that privilege. You know, otherwise... Well, that's a Telstra. Otherwise, I would have... Well, the other carriers were doing it initially as well. You know, if I paid, you know, an upfront, a two-year plan, and part of that was the phone comes free as part of that plan, and I lock myself in for two-year contract or something, that's fair dues. You know, I accept that because I'm getting the free the phone for free, but not when I pay over eight hundred dollars for the damn thing. It's not that special either, you know. So, yes. five minutes uh, before we have so to go, there. Uh, we've got your thank thank you. You're, you're taking giving us a lift to the airport. Matt's back to Sydney. I'm off to the Frankfurt Motor Show, and um, mate. Uh, uh, Matty, you have spent a lot of time in uh, iPhone development. And on all serious note, what is the state of the nation with that? And, and, and how, how good is, are things going in iPhone development? Well, they're going guns, John. You know, the uh, with more than one and a half billion downloads, it's uh, taken off more than you can imagine. So that the 
the consumption of iPhone apps has, has, has really been to a point where people are consuming it two or three a day at some, in some cases, well, downloading at an astronomical rate. So in developer land, it's certainly taken off, John. Why would people be uh, deploying iPhone applications as opposed to perhaps an Android application or something that they could send through the Telstra store? Uh, it's just the ease of deployment and, and obviously having one device that works on the iPhone platform uh, makes development uh, basically a lot easier. How easy is, is it to develop a, an application for the iPhone? Well, that's, it's, it's, it's more a case of relative ease of development uh, versus perhaps uh, on some of the other platforms. Also, the, the, the channel to market through the App Store makes it a, a very easy contract between Apple and yourself and there's no need to kind of uh, enter into multiple contracts with lots of different carriers as it were. What about those people who are just always win Windows users and suddenly you've picked up an iPhone they go this is all pretty cool but I'm, I'm a Windows guy, can, can Windows users develop? Absolutely, there's no, you need a Mac to, to, to essentially develop um, some of the software but other than that uh, is that the question? Well, I'm well, just saying for those who maybe, you know, we want to bring them over from the dark side. <laughs> yeah, you know, those, those people that do those other podcasts that I believe like people like the Tonys and the various people. Gentlemen, you guys have to go if you want to get to the plane. So thank you, John. Thank, well, you. thank well, you, Matt. That was lovely. You've just been listening to, or you've just missed, Radio Hotland. <laughs> Look, uh, we've uh, had to do a run-up because uh, we've got to get to the airport and we've suddenly realised that we're a little bit late. Foguar has uh, very kindly to, decided to run over, the, almost run over that coughing blonde uh, just before the speed bump. But Matty, you've uh, had a bit of an idea about some electric cars. Well, you know, John, for me the fascination is the change, you know, the change in vehicles. And I understand that the, the Tesla car's here for the uh, the Solar Challenge, and uh, what do you know about that car? I don't know a lot about it, other than that apparently it appears to be very fast, and the owner of Internode, uh, Simon... Uh, Simon... Uh, it's an overpriced Lotus A-Lease. Mm. You're paying for the privilege of being an early adopter... Look, Ozzy Ostrich was in there. ...what is basically... Well, it's not old-fashioned technology, but it's not cutting-edge either. The batteries weigh a ton, if not literally. Well, I understand that they And yeah. as I've said, and it's very cynical to say so, but by buying something like the Tesla, you're you're you know paying a privilege to be sanctimonious about the environment. And whether it's whole of life eco-friendliness cuts the mustard is very much up for debate. But I will grant you that devices like this which is a sports car powered by electric batteries and it's very fast off the line and that's because electric motors develop maximum torque from standstill so the thing sprints. Direct drive is that right? Yep it sprints it doesn't need gears mm -hmm. but you know it won't go very far I, I can't remember but the, the range you know so on a full charge is is modest to say. No, I think it was 190 miles or something, wasn't it? Was it yeah, as I understand yeah, it. Good luck if you if you you know drive like there's a feather on the on the. Uh, uh, and throttle. what experience do you have? Can you tell me? I have some pretty bad electric cars. I have a, a lot. Well, of no, experience. no, we're talking the Tesla specifically. Well, the I just, I, I'm interested, and this is just uh, directly as a argument at the front viewers. Now listen, as a technologist, the Tesla does interest me as a car. It. I like the idea. I, I know the sound of a car is is innate to the experience that we believe. You know, a car should sound, but the Tesla is quiet. You know, the start of a Prius is which, quiet, which is a problem in itself. It is because indeed. animals it and pedestrians indeed. can't hear them. So um, the number of people and animals who get bowled over by them um, is. But there's a lot of noise hard. in our life, so why not? Peace and quiet on yeah, the road. Look, I no, don't think we idea. need to have him on the show again. I really <laughs> don't. I mean, look, they actually to to dilute this uh, um, uh, argument. I watched uh, the last episode of, uh, like it seems, of many in the Isle of Man TT, and then they showed the the race of electric bikes. And you know what I heard? Nothing. Not even the sound of that blinker. Whirring and whizzing. 
Kill me now. If, if I, that's the future of motorsport, I'd rather stick pins in my eyes, honestly. Well, that could be. Motorsport without out. noise, uh, you know, to, to my generation, okay, I can understand that, you know, um, Gen, uh, what's the latest, Gen Ys? No, we're past that. Are we? What are we now? Zs or Zs. Really? Anyway, kids. Z. That's We're naughties, we're naughties. Yeah, kids, you know, for kids it might be an entirely different thing, and they may think that, you know, cars racing around a tr racetrack with powered by alternative sources of energy is a good thing and the fact that they sound like overgrown slot cars whizzing around the place might turn them on. I'm completely open to that idea but well, that, you know, that's interesting, a generational let me just change. Let me just bump in here. I'm, motorsport is a separate topic but let me just say in Japan the Japanese kids they don't want to drive vehicles. Do you know why? Because they think they're Big, smelly, disgusting, petrol-guzzling things. And, and in fact, the car manufacturers there have a, a real challenge to sell cars to the Japanese kids. They're, they're, they're driving their parents' uh, cars or they're taking the train. So there you go. You have a generation change within Japan and primarily within Tokyo where the kids today won't buy cars. And it's not a small change. It's a massive change. I, I admit, so, as look, I was saying, I, the generational thing is a big issue. But you know, so maybe there nature, is a space for for, for quiet motorsport. It's going to take two generations to really overturn things. That's that's just the way of the world, and we just have to look at more practical alternatives in the meantime. And the current state of technology, and taking into account economics, is that the internal combustion engine, which runs on fossil fuel, is by far the most efficient. Well, device at all levels and I'm talking about taking into account whole of life taking into account the cost of manufacturing and all that it's a it's a holistic approach to efficiency not the most efficient form of energy mm. by far and you're right Brr. I would like to see motorsport turn its attention very seriously to developing these okay. alternative let uh, me ask about the solar ch challenge and I understand that uh, the solar challenge now there's, they're opening it up. Is that right, John? That, that, that this new solar challenge will have hybrid cars and all sorts of things. Uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. At least they're opening up the opportunity and the potential to, to test other types of cars um, yeah, across good. our great expanse. That's good. Anything else? It's a glorified fuel economy run of the like like we used to have is it a sellout that's what I want to know in the late 70s and early 80s is it a sellout I mean I mean, they, they crushed the first EV car didn't they yes I mean, they literally long, crushed it that's a long sad story in itself yes. the subject of a movie but can we make it a short story a one minute story it wasn't viable at the time and GM scrapped the program for what they well, thought what at the time were commer the commercially official, valid the official commercially valid reasons yeah. it looked a car company like General Motors anyone, if they thought they could make money out of electric vehicles, if they thought they could make money out of rubber band powered vehicles, they would. There's no grand conspiracy plan between the car companies and the oil companies, you know, to keep this whole system going until we actually run out of fossil fuels. So, so why is it a technology been... company that's actually brought the Tesla? Why isn't it? One of these big incumbents that's brought an electric vehicle to... You work in technology, you know how it starts. It's the small companies, the innovators, who produce the groundswell in, in, in any area that is eventually, and after a long time, is adopted by the mainstream. But it has to build itself slowly, slowly and become economically viable. But tell me about the regulations in Australia. Why, why can't we have the electric cars that you know we're seeing in London and the different tax schemes that they've got for to incentive to, to, to bring incentive to the London traveller. We will do. The incentives in London are not that brilliant. That's more related to um, well, your road tax. Well, there's um, a road is, tax is, is, and is, also is, the... It's based on the CO2 output of your car. The more it is, the more you pay. And we're getting that by default here. Um, well, as I've Australia. seen it, I've seen it that, that uh, businesses are buying three or four of these vehicles to, to drive around London. Um, and in, in Italy, I remember seeing uh, charging stations for electric motorbikes, which I thought was fabulous. That, why can't we introduce some of these types? On of a limited scale, all of those things are happening. Well, and we will, in Australia? We will get them eventually. Tell me about that. 
No, we're not getting them here because it's simply scale. We're not big enough. You know, you're talking no, about no, no. cities about the size of London. And eventually these things will be introduced to Australia. We're, Australians will be able to buy, buy a Holden badge version of the Chevrolet Volt that's coming out in 2012. But you'll pay for the privilege. That's probably going to retail here for about $60,000 for a car that's of the comfort and size of something that you would buy for under 30 grand easily now. Mm. Since we're talking about hybrid technology, you know, what's going on in Europe with hydrogen technology? Not a lot. BMW is developing no, um, conventional engines powered by, by hydrogen, but hydrogen seems to have um, hit a bit of a brick wall at the moment in terms of, you know, it's hydrogen supposed to be the most abundant element um, in the, the world. It's a conversion process, but, as I understand con- it. Yeah, but converting it into a usable practical fuel is very complicated and very expensive. Um, you know, in a car it has to be stored at high pressure to be liquefied. You know, all these are technological problems that all alternative energy sources face and will eventually be solved. But although, traditionally, though, they don't get solved until the world reaches a crisis point. You know, until Which is, until we're really, run, really, really, really running out of oh, oil. Oh, uh, excuse me. Uh, we're attention, pushed to the wall. attention. There is a lane closed in the tunnel, um, and that looks like that we're going to be in the poo poo for getting to airport poo poo. So should we make a? It might be close, but I think you can we'll do it. We'll see how it goes. Okay. Uh, why would there be a the lane closed uh, in the tunnel? Some stuff up, as usual, in the Burnley Tunnel. Nothing unusual when, well, it's, when it's not, you know, on fire. Um, it's running slow, so... No now, we're heading, we're heading, uh, folks, into uh, the tunnel, basically bypassing, pretty much around the, uh, the MCG in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, is this normal traffic on a, on, a, on a weekday, or is this just unpleasantness? It's not entirely normal. It's usually a bit slow at this time of night, but not crawling the way it is. They they sometimes close the left lane in the tunnel, heading uh, west, if you like, underneath, going out towards the Westgate Bridge in afternoon peak hour, to because it you know it stops the funneling effect of having three lanes suddenly going down to two to it, get up it, onto it, the Is it on. also to uh, uh, provide a, a special lane for politicians and footballers? <laughs> Not to my knowledge, but we'll soon find out. I mean, we are do you think Eddie might be sort of having a dinner somewhere that he needs to get to suddenly? Not that I'm aware of. I, I think you're now being unnecessarily cynical. <laughs> we're, oh. just, we're just stuck in a traffic jam. Deal with it. Well, I, I'm not used to it in Adelaide. I've never seen anything quite like it. Well, before. John, when you go back to Adelaide, I'd there like to no hear your reports about the Tesla. I'm very interested. Well, uh, I'm trying to think of his name. It's Simon, Simon, Simon. I don't know. But anyway, uh, viewers, well, thanks for listening to Radio Hot Lab. I think, once again, we're signing off from a very interesting... Well, it was Radio Hot Folks Plus, wasn't it? Oh, just, uh, just when you thought you'd got your fill... It's HFP... Back it comes... 126. ...with an extra... Not me. Oh,